On this week in Enterprise Tech, we have Mr. Brian Sheen, Mr. Curtis Franklin here today. Now, we're talking AWS outage, the impact, and cloud service lock-in, plus what your organization should be doing here. Plus, we have a really great guest today, Marco Palladino. He's CTO at Kong Incorporated. We're going to be talking microservices, API gateways, and digital transformation. So lots of interesting things to talk about here. You definitely should not miss it. Twilight on the set. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Twyatt. This Week in Enterprise Tech, episode 472, recorded December 10th, 2021. Kong API Dog Fooding. This episode of This Week in Enterprise Tech is brought to you by Nareva. Nareva is revolutionizing audio for meeting and learning spaces by making it possible to get full room microphone coverage in medium to large spaces without the cost and complexity of multi-component pro AV solutions. That's a revolution. Learn more at Nareva.com slash twit. And by Melissa. The U.S. Postal Service processes more than 98,000 address changes daily. Is your customer contact data up to date? Try Melissa's APIs in the developer portal. It's easy to log on, sign up, and start playing in the API sandbox 24-7. Get started today with 1,000 records cleaned for free at melissa.com slash twit. And by Thinks Canary. Detect attackers on your network while avoiding irritating false alarms. Get the alerts that matter. For 10% off and 60-day money-back guarantee, go to canary.tools slash twit and enter the code twit in the Happy Hear About Us box. Welcome to Twyatt This Week in Enterprise Tech, the show that is dedicated to you, the enterprise professional, the IT pro, and that geek who just wants to know how this world is connected. I'm your host, Louis Maresca, your guide through this big world of the enterprise. But I definitely can't guide you by myself. I need to bring in the professionals, the experts in their fields, starting with our very own Mr. Brian Chi. He's net architect at Sky Fiber and all-around tech geek. Chibert, how's everything going? How was your week? Um, I had an amazing time. I was uh, went with uh, Kurt and his lovely wife and we got to see a night of a million lights at give kids the world's village over in um the Kissimmee area lots and lots of fun sorry i wanted to share some video but the background music is copyrighted can't do it oh bummer anyway so i'm having fun putting up christmas lights and starting to get into the christmas spirit you know, I tried to do I tried to do microcontrollers this year on my my lights. I was unsuccessful. Are you doing anything uh, anything interesting special with that? Yeah, I'm actually using some five volt RGB LEDs, uh, waterproof jobs, and I'm actually using a turnkey microcontroller. Okay. Um, just because I don't have you know I didn't want to suck up a ton of time. Maybe next year I'm going to put an Arduino on it. We'll see. Yeah, I think I probably should have uh, gave myself more time here, but hopefully next year will be the year of of uh, our our moving and uh, singing lights. We'll have to see that. Thanks, Shaper, for being here. We'll also have to welcome back Mr. Curtis Franklin. He's senior analyst at IMDia, and he has the pulse of the enterprise and IT security out there. Curtis, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Oh, doing reasonably well, Lou. It's uh, another 
great December getting started here in the industry. You know, I enjoyed going over to Night of a Million Lights with uh, Brian and and his dear wife. Uh, Carol and I enjoyed it. And now we're sort of throttling back. I've got one more big webinar to do next week um, where I'll be talking about the strategies for figuring out whether your uh, cybersecurity awareness training is working or not, uh, something uh, a little more fine-grained than, oops, we allowed in 400,000 hackers. So I uh, got that to do and then going to take a pause before launching into a big spring of research. Uh, and, of course, another great season of being right here on Twiat. That's right, indeed. We do have a great season. We have a lot to talk about today as part of that season. Thank you, Curtis, for being here. So let's go ahead and jump into all that news. Now, you may have heard this past week, AWS had a little bit of blip in their service, and a lot of services were part of that that were using it as, as back end. We'll get into what happened there, and we'll talk a little bit about cloud management and cloud redundancy. We'll get, get into that a little bit later. Plus, we have a really great guest today, Marco Palladino. He's the CTO of Kong, a really interesting guest here. We're going to talk about microservices, API management, API gateways, digital transformations, lots of interesting stuff that we're going to talk about here. So stick around, and we'll get to it soon. But before we do, we do have to get into this week's news blips. Supply chain attacks come in many different flavors. We've discussed this on Twite often regarding the risks of using third-party libraries in your code. Well, if you need another example of the dangers of third-party libraries, researchers have a doozy one for you. Now, this past week, researchers noticed that a popular Java logging library, Log4j, had a bug that allows for remote, remote code execution. RCEs are a hack for a hacker lingo for one of the most dangerous types of vulnerabilities, one that essentially allows attackers and hackers to take control of a targeted machine. Now, GitHub labeled the vulnerability as critical severity, and many researchers, as well as the director of cybersecurity at the NSA, are sounding the alarm. Now, the Log4j vulnerability labeled CVE 2021-442288 is an extremely bad one. That's right. This isn't the type of vulnerability that's hard to actually exploit here. Now, millions of applications out there use Log4j for logging. The act of keeping a log of any event or action that happens on a server. Now, and the hacker, all the thing that the attacker has to do here is to get the app to log a special string. Now, the exploit is actually unbelievably simple. Now, you may be asking, how big is the impact here on the vulnerability it's having on software? Well, you actually may already have it. That's right. iCloud, Twitter, Cloudflare, Minecraft, Steam apps are reported to be using this library. That's just a small fraction of the number out there. Now, if you are a gamer, a social networking peruser, or you use iCloud to manage your software or your storage, you are vulnerable. That's right. Log4j is incorporated into many hosts out there, including popular frameworks, including Apache Strut2, Apache Solar, Apache Druid, Apache Flink. That means that a dizzying number of third-party apps may also be vulnerable to exploits that carry the same high severity as those that's those that are threatening the, uh, of course, the Minecraft users that are out there. Now, there are also some saving graces here. Now, some of the JDK or Java development kit configs may save you from the exploitation because some of those distros ship secure configs by default. Unfortunately, the vulnerability comes at a time where many software companies are already on high alert due to gift giving season where people have air gap machines connected to the Internet without actually having updates on them. Hopefully, the mitigation fixes will start rolling out and hitting the market real soon and people will apply them before the holiday ends. 
Way back in January, law enforcement's takedown of the network controlling Emotet was considered a major piece of good news in the war on cyber criminals. This week, we learned that the celebration might have been premature. Researchers from Checkpoint reportedly reported recently observing Emotet samples being dropped on systems that previously had been infected with banking Trojan-turned-malware downloader TrickBot. The new Emotet malware began surfacing on November 15th, or just about 10 months after law enforcement authorities took its infrastructure down in a coordinated effort that spanned multiple countries. Since November 15th, the volume of Emotet malware that Checkpoint has spotted has continued to grow daily and is now at at least 50% of the volume where it was before that January 2021 takedown. Malware is spreading both via TrickBot and via malicious spam messages that are being sent from infected systems to other computers worldwide. The malware's reemergence is troublesome for enterprises because of how extensively it was tied to ransomware attacks before the January takedown. Now, Emotet is designed to harvest email addresses, steal credentials, distribute spam, enable lateral movement, download other malware, including TrickBot, and other malicious activities. The business model of its operators, before being forced offline in January, was to infect networks and to later sell access to the infected network to other threat actors, most notably ransomware operators. In the months the malware was dormant, the authors of Emotet have tweaked its features and made it more capable. One example is the new variant's use of elliptic curve cryptography instead of the weaker RSA in the previous version for encrypted communications. In resurfacing, Emotet has become the latest example of the resilience that some cyber operators have shown against even the more, most concerted takedown efforts. The fact that the malware is back speaks to the globalized nature of the Emotet operation, which U.S. authorities have estimated is, has already caused several hundreds of millions of dollars in damages. Emotet's reappearance is also a testament to the success of the collaboration its operators have with the actors behind TrickBot, which is a highly modular malware family that started off in 2016 as a banking Trojan, but is now widely used to distribute malware. Law enforcement authorities attempted to disrupt the TrickBot operation in a major initiative in October 2020, but it continues to operate like that effort never happened. TrickBot was the most prevalent malware in May, June, and October of this year. And that malware has infected over 140,000 systems worldwide in the last 11 months. Well, it took an act of Congress and $7.5 billion in federal funding, but more than 50 of the nation's power companies are ready to build a coast-to-coast fast-charging network for electric vehicles. Now, the proposal so far is light on details. Members of the National Electric Highway Coalition say they serve nearly 120 million customers across 47 states in the District of Columbia. The coalition hasn't said how many fast chargers it will be installing, but the company said it would focus first on gaps in existing fast charging networks along interstate highways. The group is, quote, committed to investing in and providing charging infrastructure necessary to facilitate electric vehicle growth and to help alleviate any remaining customers' range anxiety, said Tom Kuhn, president of the Edison Electric Institute, which helped build the coalition. Well, 
by merging and expanding the existing efforts underway to build fast charging infrastructure along major travel corridors, we are building a foundational EV charging network that will help to encourage more customers to purchase an electric vehicle, he said in a statement. Well, the company's uh, the announcements accompanying Lowrez Map has strong MapQuest circa 2003 vibes, but if you squint hard enough, you can imagine how the group would begin to bridge gaps in existing networks. The Department of Energy's EV charging map shows that sites in the Midwest and Intermountain West have a paucity. Oh, that's a weird word. A scarcity of DC fast chargers. Well, Though the new coalition itself has gaps that more or less run from North Dakota down to New Mexico, it has a strong presence in states where fast chargers remain scarce, like Indiana, Iowa, Illinois, and Wisconsin. Southern states get better coverage, too, including Tennessee and the northern halves of Mississippi and Alabama. West Virginia and western Pennsylvania also stand to benefit. The Biden administration has made EV charging infrastructure a key plank in its infrastructure plans, hoping to build 500,000 fast chargers by 2030. To participate, many utilities will need to get the go-ahead from regulators, but the EEI says that over 50 have already received approval for $3 billion worth of EV-related projects. Well, something clearly has to be done in order to deal with the range anxiety for the world to fully adopt electric vehicles and wean-off hybrids. And keep in mind, one of the unsaid things is electric trucks long-haul electric trucks have a significant impact on the um, carbon footprint for the united states and having a coast-to-coast charging infrastructure can go a long way towards getting us off that gasoline and diesel habit now, this next story is really interesting. I love hearing how technology can really impact the world for the good. Now, if you have any doubt about the impact of artificial intelligence on different sectors of the market, DeepMind, the UK-based AI company, has another reason to make you a true believer. Now, a long-standing and incredibly complex scientific problem concerning the structure and behavior of proteins has been effectively solved by a new artificial intelligence system, scientists Report. Now, DeepMind has a great track record of solving hard, impossible to solve problems with its ever advancing neural networks. And they have just recently shifted focus on finding new ways to fight disease by predicting infinitesimal amounts of or but vitally important aspects of human biology. Now, with the latest version of their AlphaFold AI engine, they seem to have actually achieved this very ambitious goal or at least gotten us closer than scientists have ever before. For about 50 years, researchers have strived to predict, predict how proteins achieve their three-dimensional structure, and it's not an easy problem to solve. Now, the astronomical number of potential of configuration is also a mind blow, mind-bogglingly huge, mind-blowingly huge. In fact, that researchers postulated it would take longer than an age of the universe to sample all the possible molecular arrangements. And nonetheless, if they're able to solve this puzzle, puzzle known as the protein folding problem, it could constitute a giant breakthrough in scientific capabilities, vastly accelerating research endeavors and things like drug discovery and modeling disease and also leading to new applications for far beyond health. Now, in its third decade, the CASP experiment looks to have produced its most promising solution yet, with DeepMind's AlphaFold de- delivering predictions of 3D protein structures with unprecedented accuracy. Even though the full findings are not published yet, the promise out- output shows means that 2022 
may finally be the year of AI. Well, folks, that does it for the blips. Next up, the bites. But before we get to the bites, we do have to thank a great sponsor of this week in enterprise tech, and that's Nareva. Now, there are plenty, plenty of simple plug-and-play audio solutions for huddle rooms, but getting full room mic coverage in mid-size or large meeting rooms and learning spaces has traditionally meant making a big leap into the complexity and high cost of pro AV solutions. But Nareva is changing all that by simplifying almost every aspect of audio conferencing. Let's compare the two approaches to getting quality audio in really large spaces. Purchase and installation subject here. Pro AV systems for mid-sized to large rooms means involving multiple components, including mics and speakers installed into the ceiling or spread across the table, and lots of cables, ton of cables. In fact, it also needs specialized technicians to determine the required components installed and calibrating the system. Now, it takes days for installation sometimes and costs tens of thousands of dollars per room for purchase and installation. Now, let's talk about where Nareva comes in here. Nareva Audio provides exceptional audio for a room up to 25 by 25 feet with one, that's right, one integrated microphone and speaker bar. Now, two bars can actually cover a space up to 30 by 50 feet. Installs are really simple, just like a DIY project. And it takes about 30 minutes to install each device on the wall with two screws and one cable. And the cost, a fraction of the cost of a pro AV AV system that's out there. Now let's talk mic coverage. Now pro AV systems, they typically use these beam forming mic systems that may provide really good pickup within the beams, but there can be diminished pickup if a talker moves outside or faces away from the beams and it needs to be calibrated all the time, especially if you rearrange the room. Now with Nareva's microphone mist technology, you get true full room coverage so everyone is heard no matter where they move in the room or which way they face. You also get continuous auto calibration, means your room is always ready no matter what. Now let's talk about management software. Now Pro AV Systems, they managing Pro AV Systems can be really complicated. It may require training for IT pros just to actually operate the software. Nareva Console is a simple, intuitive platform that lets you easily monitor, manage, adjust, and scale your fleet of systems from anywhere. No training required. The question is, which approach will you choose? Learn more at Nareva.com slash twit. That's N-U-R-E-V-A dot com slash T-W-I-T. And we thank Nareva for their support of This Week in Enterprise Tech. Well, folks, it's now time for the bites. Now, we've talked about a lot about cloud service lock-in in the past and the fact that you might have a dependency on a cloud service. And it can actually help organizations scale and have a normalized way of maintaining their resources in their back end and in their service layers. Most don't really think about the negative impact of such an environment. For example, if, if it could be a single point of failure for your business, you had to think about that, right? Or your, even your operations. Now, for services like Ring, Disney+, Plus, Alexa, Roku, Coinbase, Venmo, and I got a laundry list more of these things that are out there, they got a lesson in redundancy and fail over this past week. That's right. AWS went down and made sure to have no mercy on any of their services. The question is, what happened? So let's get into that. Now, how can one of the largest cloud service providers in the world have such a problem? Well, you may be shocked to hear it was human error. That's right. Human error. In a blog post, the company said that one of its employees was debugging the issue with the billing system and accidentally took one or more servers offline than intended. That error started a domino effect that took down two other server subsystems and so on and so forth, removing a significant portion of the capacity caused 
each of these systems to require a full restart. Whoops, I got a reboot. While these subsystems were then restarting, S3 was unable to service requests. Other AWS services in the U.S. East 1 region that rely on S3 storage, including the S3 console, Amazon Elastic Compute, new instance launches, and Amazon Elastic Block storage volumes um, as well, uh, and AWS Lambda were also impacted here while the S3 APIs were unavailable. Now, I can say one thing. I definitely wouldn't want to be the person that was on the conference bridge during this outage. I could definitely say there was some colorful words probably on that bridge. And I definitely don't want to be the guy who made the error that caused the cascading effect that took down the Internet and one swift strike of the right pins. Now, the question here is one of one of the where's the impact here? What what actually caused this problem? Well, uh, what came out of it was that the company wants to make some improvements here, changes here to ensure that a similar human error wouldn't have as large as an impact as it did this one. Now, one, one of those things is that a tool that employees use to remove server capacity will no longer allow them to remove as much as, as they can as quickly as previously could. And Amazon also said it would make changes to prevent the AWS service health dashboard, the web page that shows which AWS service is operating normally or not from stop working in the event of a similar occurrence. Now the question arises from all of this whole ordeal. And we talk about this a lot. Does cloud service lock-in make sense? And should you always be paying to ensure you have a backup plan here? Now I want to bring my co-host in because it's a, it's a really big topic. I think we talk about a lot about digital transformations, hybrid clouding. But the fact that when you lock into a cloud service, whether it's a front end, it's a back end, it's both, um, it's, you know, it's just a service layer, you're still locking in and you're dependent on these things from being up all the time. It seems like in this case, both of those layers went out in AWS. What, what's the right thing to do here? Let's start with you, Curtis. Well, I think one of the big things that you, you have to understand is that there are a lot of organizations who were impacted by this who had no idea that they were even customers of AWS. Uh, I was taking part in an activity where there was a virtual online environment. Parts of it were having trouble, and it seemed that some pieces of the functionality were based on software that where the modules were hosted on AWS. Um, you know, it's easy to say that in the same way that it's reasonable to have multiple paths to the internet if you are uh, a, an organization. In other words, if you have um, an ISP, you should have... Uh, a, a backup route to the internet with a different provider. Well, that's easy to say. If you've got a cloud service, your backup should be on a different cloud service. But what if you don't know that you're a customer? That's where you get into this word that we're hearing more and more in all kinds of contexts. And I may, in fact, bring it up with our guests later on. And that's dependencies, software dependencies, the little bits and pieces that make up all of our applications. Where do they live? Who knows? Uh, something like AWS can have an impact even if you've been careful. And if you're going to be careful, you've got to look beyond AWS. Indeed, indeed. And Chip, I want to throw you the same question because obviously a lot of, you know, this is just a, a lesson in, in the simple networking where you, you know, making sure that you have 
redundancy in your network it also means that you know your endpoints need to have redundancy as well. You know, are you seeing? Obviously, you see this a lot in networking development or or, or produ- production. Well, yeah, and um, but I I I gotta agree with with Kurt on this. There were some services that went down for me the other day that I could have swore they would have run their own systems, like my home security system. It never went down. It was always working, but I couldn't update things like billing. So apparently my home security system's billing system was in AWS. Now, the other thing that a lot of people don't realize is the web-based video viewers that people embed into web pages. Those are really cool. They do all kinds of really cool stuff. But because the, um, the player needs to be updated on a really frequent basis, a lot of companies embed those someplace in the cloud so that when you try and open a video window, it will go and always grab the latest and greatest version. Now, let, let me get to the point. <clears throat> the point is neither of those systems had a check to see if the cloud version was there or operational. I think maybe, since, especially since our guest today is talking about APIs, I'm thinking, you know, one of the APIs that our friends at Amazon AWS needs to start thinking about is they brag about failover, but their APIs aren't failing over. So maybe there needs to be some changes what do you think? You know, maybe. And there's a lot of things that I love to talk hybrid. I think hybrid's a better answer than going completely cloud. Um, for the very reason is I want the master under my control and I want my load, my, my expanding load to be able to handle in the cloud so that I can shrink and expand as I, as I see necessary. I think that's one of the things that we talk about as being a really big selling point of the cloud, but something like this kind of tells me that there's some missing um, tools that um, I think we need to start looking for. Indeed. I think I definitely, I think you're right. Curtis, I want to throw the last question to you here. Um, you know, obviously we, you, you and Chiever talked a little bit about using a service and not really realizing that those services have other dependencies, other tentacles into services like AWS or other areas of cloud storage and so on. The question here is how can an organization protect themselves from this? Like if they are using, uh, you know, security services that have that they don't have any, you know, the users have any uh, clue that they're using things like AWS in the back end. What, what guarantees do I have here? What, what can I ensure that if I am buying into the cloud service that I have, I have this uptime? Well, it's going to be tough. Um, one of the things that you can do, there are services and applications that go through, scan your code, scan your applications, and follow the dependency tree. Uh, they are typically intended to look for known security issues, known vulnerabilities in the various pieces of code that you're using. But they can also look for where you have cloud dependencies. And that's important. You know, one of the things that we find when uh, we talk to CIOs 
is that it is not uncommon for a CIO to not have any clue just how many cloud services his organization is using. Often they will come out and give an estimate that they think is the the best estimate for how many cloud services they use, and their answer is actually off by an order of magnitude. Um, The fact is you are using cloud services. The likelihood is good that you're using AWS even if you have no idea that you're doing so. And often, even if you have made a conscious choice that you're not going to use AWS for some reason or another. So the big key here is to have some sort of resilience built in for if an entire service, if an application goes offline, how is your organization going to cope if something that you use all the time suddenly isn't there, whether it's a key application to uh, allow customers to make a purchase, uh, a key application to control an industrial process, or just the collaboration software that your teams use to talk to one another. It's important to have some backup that uses a different system entirely where you can. And often that backup system is going to turn out to be some sort of communication system that allows the entire team to know that something has gone significantly wrong. Thank you, Curtis. I think the interesting thing here is we're going to see this a lot more as as time goes on. I think one thing to kind of pay attention to, especially as an organization who's using or buying into a service, you know, make sure these services have you know SLAs. They they guarantee you to be up because that means that they also are maintaining guarantees with their providers as well. Um, and if, if not, you know, maybe there's some, uh, maybe they can provide some, um, you know, some money back to you or some, or some, some, uh, some credit back to you in regards to that. Now that doesn't fix your customer down scenarios, but it does kind of enforce them that they're maintaining some redundancy there. Um, even if they have to do it in their own infrastructure. So I would say definitely tr- check that out when you're, when you're, when you're implementing your own services or if you are, are buying into other services. Um, consumers, unfortunately, they're not going to get, too much of that because there's not usually a lot of SLAs provided to consumer services, but in the same sense, we'll see. And I'm actually hearing a little bit through the grapevine here, like for instance, Apple's iCloud, a lot of it does have uh, some tentacles into AWS, but you know they've done a pretty good amount of work to to move on to their own infrastructure. So we'll see how much they they uh, they kind of uh, evolve over time there. Well, folks, that does it for the bites. Next up, we have our guests to drop some knowledge on the Twilight Riot. But before we get to that, we do have to thank another great sponsor of This Week at Enterprise Tech, and that's Melissa. Now, having accurate customer address data is crucial for the success of your business. Now, did you know that nearly 36 million address changes were processed by the USPS in 2020? I was definitely one of those. Now, that's a huge chunk of customers you could be missing out on. 30% of customer data goes bad each and every year, but Melissa can help make sure your data is current and accurate. Now, Melissa's both experienced and independent and has over 35 years of data quality expertise, which explains why over 10,000 businesses know them as the address experts. Now, Melissa also has a renewal rate of over 92% because 25% is the typical ROI for Melissa customers. 
You can verify addresses, emails, phone numbers, and names in real time with Melissa. Melissa's global address verification service verifies addresses for over 240 countries and territories at the point of entry. If you're tired of duplicate customer information in your database, Melissa's data matching will help eliminate clutter and duplicates and increasing the accuracy of the database while reducing postage and mailing costs. Geocoding enrichments mean that you can convert addresses into longitude and latitude coordinates. And email verification helps you remove up to 95% of bad email addresses from your database. Melissa's flexible deployment options offer different platforms to suit any preference, business size, or budget. Now, with flexible on-premise, web service, secure FTP processing, and software-as-a-service delivery options, Melissa's also has their new Lookups app on iOS and Google to search addresses, names, and more at your fingertips. Melissa's continually undergoing independent security audits to reinforce their commitment to data security, privacy, and compliance requirements. They are SOC 2, HIPAA, and GDPR compliant. Melissa's Global Support Center also offers 24-7 world-renowned support if you sign up for a service-level agreement. Inquire today. Melissa is still supporting communities and qualifying essential workers during COVID-19. See if your organization qualifies for six months of free service by applying online at melissa.com. Melissa has been named to Gartner's Magic Quadrant for Data Quality Solutions for a second year in a row. Make sure your customer's contact data is up to date. Try Melissa's APIs in the developer portal. It's easy to log on, sign up, and start playing in the API sandbox 24-7. Get started today with 1,000 records cleaned for free at melissa.com slash twit. That's melissa.com slash twit. And we thank Melissa for their support of This Week in Enterprise Tech. Well, folks, it's my favorite part of the show. We actually get to bring, to bring in a guest to drop some knowledge on the Twilight Ryan. Today, we have Marco Paladino. He's the CTO of Khan. Welcome to the show, Marco. Thanks for having me here. Absolutely. Now, Marco, uh, as usual, I want to make sure the audience hears this because you have a very interesting journey um, that people love to hear or people's origin stories. And our audience wants to hear just, uh, you know, maybe take us through a short journey of tech through tech and what brought you to Khan. Well, I was... Uh... I grew up in Italy with my co-founder, Augusto and I, when we were 20 years old, started to work together and we decided to come to the U.S. So it's, uh, you know, we're immigrants here. We came when we were like 21 years old uh, with no money whatsoever. So we came here trying to raise the first angel round. We only had money to live here in a hotel for like a week, uh, but the return flight was three months later. So we came here, tried to build a network, um, emailed a few people, Ended up being hosted by Travis Kalanick, the CEO of Uber, before Uber started. Ended up meeting lots of interesting folks here in Silicon Valley, like the Airbnb founders, uh, when Airbnb was like 10, 15 people, uh, worked in their office. Uh, You know, we came here as immigrants and we didn't have any network. And in order to be able to raise money in Silicon Valley, having a network that can filter the introduction, it's very important. And so... As we were building the product, Augusto and I were also focused on building this initial network, which you know took quite a quite a long time to build. At the end of the day, it's really interesting. Now, I mean, as you were building this network, was it you know were you going to trade shows? Were you doing demos? Were you building out? Um, were you building out solutions for particular partners? That kind of thing. Like, what, what was what helped you build that network out? I'm really interested here. 
Yeah, so we were working all day uh, until 4 5 a.m. And then, uh, you know, whenever there was an opportunity to go um, at, at a meetup or a conference, mm-hmm. uh, we, we, we went there. And by the way, that's how we raised our first money, um, uh, the first angel round. So we went to these conferences for a couple of reasons. Number one, <laughs> you know, I lost 20 pounds when I came here uh, with my co-founder. We didn't really, we really didn't have money to eat. Uh, and to feed ourselves. So going to these places was great because there was always free food and free pizza we could we could eat. Uh, and then the second goal after being well fed uh, was to actually meet meet people. And and um, and um, you know we raised our first first angel round by going to this event at Stanford. Um, at one point, the person at the reception desk left to go to the bathroom. I would assume, and and we stole essentially the paper that contained all the list of uh, guests that were attending the conference. And that paper had like thousands of names with email address, occupation. So we start just blasting everybody uh, via email once, once we went back home, um, telling them, hey, we met at the conference. Uh, you know, you, you said you would be interested in speaking to us, even to folks that we never met. You know, we're just trying so hard to build that network and try to get meetings. And that's how we met our first angel investors back in those days. It's amazing. It's amazing. So the, the origin of Kong, this is really interesting because the origin of Kong was essentially an API gateway vendor back in 2017. And obviously, cloud services have evolved over time in the past three, four years. Um, and we're starting to see a lot more of API management software out there. Before we get kind of deep into the technology here, I'm actually curious, like, what, what, do you, what is Kong doing and how has it evolved um, since then that's kind of setting itself apart from some of these other vendors that are out there? Kong is the result of a pivot that we did in uh, 2015, actually. So when we first moved to the U.S., we started MashShape which was an API marketplace for people to consume and use APIs. Mm-hmm. As part of the work we were doing with MashShape, uh, we were working with microservices very early on in 2013, 2014, and we built for ourselves an API gateway that we used in the marketplace to power and process billions and trillions of requests that all the API developers, almost half a million, you know, were making back in those days. Now, MashShape had a very growing user base, but a very poor business model. And so in 2015, we had to pivot and because the money was running out and, and we decided to take the most valuable things we've built, the gateway, and then offer it standalone. It worked so well that two years later, the entire company rebranded into Kong Inc. MashApe used to have an ape logo, MashApe, and the most famous ape in the world is King Kong, and that's why it's called Kong. <laughs> and, so, and so we released Kong, um, and, and turns out Kong was built for this new world of containers and Kubernetes that really was emerging in 2013 with Docker, in 2014 with the release of Kubernetes. And nothing, nothing in the market was able to provide a, an API gateway technology that could work in, in, these, new, in these new platforms and in these new right. architectures. You know, most API management companies at the time were coming from the SOA world of the mid 2000, you know, the SOA dream, which never really right. materialized. And so they were built in a monolithic way and, and they were quite heavyweight. And so when we built Kong for ourselves, we needed something lightweight, something that was fast, something that was modern. And then we open sourced it. And then all of a sudden, the adoption of Kong just skyrocketed. We were not expecting this type of adoption. And enterprise organizations were call, calling us 
reaching out to us, asking us to provide support and enterprise features for for their gateway installation. And, and here we are. So today, Kong started as an API gateway, as an API management organization, but then it expanded over the course of the years to include broader use cases within the API connectivity landscape. Today, everything is powered by an API. The API is at the backbone of the digital world that we live and breathe and the entire world is using and consuming whenever they wake up and, and before going to, to sleep. And so this entire world is powered by APIs and we provide the modern infrastructure that allows all of these API connectivity to work in a reliable, secure, and observable way. Let me ask you guys, we, we talked about earlier in the show around the fact that obviously there were some issues with AWS uh, this past week. Now, how is your gateways managed and the infrastructure managed for this? Do you have your own data centers? Are you using cloud service uh, vendors out there to, to kind of manage this? Like, what, what, is, what is the essentially like the high-level architecture of that? The users can download their uh, our products, the gateway or the service mesh uh, or the mm-hmm. API design and testing solution, you know, whatever that is, they can download it and run it within their own infrastructure. Now, of course, we also have a cloud platform in case they don't want to do that. Uh, being able to upgrade and manage the operations of a gateway can be quite challenging. And so we provide right. a cloud platform that allows to abstract all of that away. Uh, but if they want, they can download the software and then run it by themselves in a self-managed way in their own infrastructure. So they have a choice. They have a choice. Sure. Got it. So uh, I'm our audience, obviously, very technical, but sometimes there's there's some challenges because there's some new technology that comes out. I'm, I want to make sure we bring it down to kind of baseline foundational knowledge here. Um, a lot of people, we've been talking about a lot, of, a lot of things like, for instance, serverless technology, where it's really easy for people to go create, like, let's say, an Azure function or or something like that, where it's an API and it's kind of serverless, it's an infrastructure. Uh, there's no infrastructure that I have to manage. Um, and, and it makes it easy for me to build an API out there. And they manage kind of like the essentially the gateway and, the, and all that stuff for them. Well, what is the advantage of having a gateway over something like that? Well, turns out that building an API, half of the job is to create the actual API. And then the other half is to make sure that we can build a product lifecycle around the API. You see, APIs are like products. They need to have a lifecycle that allows us to create a new API, advertise a new API, version the API, secure the API, manage the governance on how users are going to be consuming the API, how this API is going to be documented, and all the analytics that uh, are built around these API consumption, all of that, all of this are things that are not included in the creation of the API per se. So whenever there is a new engineer or a new developer or a team creating an API, sure, they can do that, but then they have to manage this entire lifecycle. And this is what Kong does. We provide technology that allows them to manage this lifecycle without having to build it from scratch. And the more APIs we have and the more services we have, and the more and the bigger the requirement for a platform that can manage this lifecycle across the board really, really is across the organization. APIs are going to be increasing in number moving forward. We're not going to shrink the number of APIs, but we're going to have more services and more APIs. And so a platform like this allows the organization to essentially being able to scale, right? And, and we are technologists. So we actually built this first and foremost for ourselves, right? So right. this is really something that, that we built with the idea of creating the best technology and the best product when it comes to managing these APIs. It's interesting because a lot of organizations, a lot of companies out there that services out there are 
are exactly that. They build these services for themselves and they find a way then obviously they as more they more more clients sign up for it, they develop more features for it and they they kind of uh broaden the scope of the service and make make it more valuable. Um you know, we talked with Splunk is very similar. Um and I, I think that this is a, just an interesting kind of world to be in. I, you know, you talk about management um, a lot of organizations are doing digital transformations, but what they're finding is they're they're hosting some of their services and let's say you know uh, they're hosting it in Azure, they're hosting it in AWS, they're hosting it in you know in different their storage is in another service. What is what is your uh, infrastructure? What is AD, I'm sorry. What is uh, Kong doing here to actually assist people with that when it comes to just I want to just build an application. I don't want to have to care where all these services are at. What what, what is Kong doing here, and how do how do I kind of onboard to that type of thing? Yeah, we do a couple of things when it comes to that. Of course, we're working with users and customers that are deploying APIs in all sorts of different environments. So first and foremost, whatever that we provide must work in every environment. It's a cloud agnostic and platform agnostic technology. But most importantly, we're looking, we're working with some organizations that perhaps have multiple clouds, not necessarily because they want them, but because they happen to have multiple clouds. They make acquisitions, the acquiring comp- the acquired company runs in a different cloud, and then all of a sudden you have this large variety of different uh, platforms and clouds that you have to manage and secure from an API standpoint. And so we provide a platform that can run simultaneously across containers or virtual machines or one cloud or multiple clouds, and then provide a single pane of glass that allows the architect and the application team to manage and, and consume these API management functions from, from one place. So essentially, it's as if we create an overlay that sits above this distributed complexity, if you wish, and then we provide an easy way to manage that connectivity from, from one interface, which is the, uh, you know, the products that we create. Now, with Service Mesh, we operate at a much lower level, uh, so we can create an overlay that within the applications themselves can reliably connect microservices and create zero trust security among them, create self-healing infrastructure. And then there is going to be a subset of services that we want to offer to either another team in the organization or or to a partner or to a developer or to a customer outside of the organization. And then we can use the API management solution to be able to do that because the requirements are quite different depending if you're trying to enable somebody else to consume the API Therefore, we need more governance or if it's an internal uh, consumption from another service within the same application. Therefore, that governance, it's different and a service mesh can be adopted for that. Marco, we have a lot more to talk about here, a lot of more interesting stuff. And I also want to bring my co-host back in. But before we do, we do have to thank another sponsor of This Week in Enterprise Tech, and that's Thanks to Canary. Now, the last thing anyone wants or needs right now is a data breach. We know that rather than the villain lying in wait, you have a hero. That's right. Thanks, Canary is actually waiting for them. Now, companies usually find out too late they've been compromised, even after they've already spent millions of dollars on IT security and find out it wasn't enough. Now, Canary has completely changed the game here. It's designed to be installed and configured in minutes and, pardon the pun, left to its own devices. You don't have to think about it. Now, attackers prowling a target network look for juicy, juicy content. They'll browse Active Directory for file servers, explore file shares, looking for documents. They'll try to default passwords against network devices and web services and will scan for open services across your entire network. Now, canaries can be deployed throughout your entire network and can make them look identical to a router, a switch, a NAS server, a Linux box, or a Windows server so attackers won't know they've been caught. Thanks Canaries are designed to look like the things the hackers 
want to get to. Now, you can put fake files on them or, or enroll them in Active Directory. Now, when attackers investigate them further, they give themselves away and you're instantly notified. You can also use Canary tokens. Now, these are tiny tripwires that can be dropped into hundreds of places. They follow the Things Canary philosophy of trivial to deploy with a ridiculously high quality of signal. Now, if an alert happens, Canary will notify you the way you want, any way you want. Plus, you won't be inundated with false alarms. Now, you can get alerts by many different ways. You can get them by email or text message on your console, via Slack, via webhook, syslog, or even their API. Choose the option that works best for your business. Now, it's important that companies know two things. Two things. We talk about them all the time when it comes to data breaches. One, hackers usually take the path of least resistance, and that's typically your staff. That's right. And two, it takes on average 191 days for a company to realize there's been a data breach. That's too long and thinks Canary solves the problem for you. Now, the people behind Canary have been in the security game for almost two decades and have trained companies, militaries, and governments on how to break into networks. That's the knowledge they've used to build Canary. Now, Things Canaries are deployed all over the world on all seven continents and are one of the best tools against data breaches. Visit canary.tools slash twit. And for just $7,500 per year, you'll get five Canaries, your own hosted console, upgrades, support, and maintenance. And if you use the code twit in the how do you hear about us box, you'll get 10% off the price for life. We know you'll love your Things Canary, but if you're not happy, you can always return your Canaries with their two-month money-back guarantee for a full refund. That's canary.tools slash twit and enter the code twit and the how do you hear about us box. And we thank Things Canary for their support of this week in enterprise tech. Well, folks, we've been talking with Marco Palladino. He's the CTO of Calm. We've been talking about API management. We've been talking about gateways, microservices. I'm, just a couple more questions. I want to bring my co-host back in because this is a really interesting topic for me. Um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the fact that uh, obviously API management is really important, especially in a hybrid cloud scenario. You brought up some good points here around, hey, we're we're talking, we're tagging in things like zero trust. We're we're maintaining governance. We're maintaining security and identity, uh, as well as in these layers. I heard recently that obviously Kong, the, the way that it's been really successful, it seems, is the fact that you have a really great partnership with a lot of different. Uh, organizations out there, like for instance, Okta or um, or AWS or whatnot, and so you are able to integrate these things in your service. Um, but I heard recently something about what they call Kong Force. Can you maybe take us through what that is and how it's kind of enhancing the service infrastructure there? Of course, being able to integrate our technology with the existing fabric of tools and products that the organization is already using, it's very important. You know, we don't want to reinvent the wheel, but we want to be able to integrate our technology with whatever the organization is already using for security, for monitoring, for observability, and so on and so forth. And so forth. And so we created a, a new channel and partner program that really aims at increasing the number of integrations that we can build and you know that we can provide on top of our technology in such a way that we can make it very easy in one click to let's say download our technology and then integrate you know the certificate authority that's being used for zero trust with an existing provider like, let's say, Ashicorp Vault, for example. And so these type of partnerships and integrations, at the end of the day, they are meant for the customer because it, it's going to be making their customer journey much easier if we already provide out-of-the-box solutions to be able to integrate these within the existing landscape of tooling that they're, that they're using. Um, so I hope this answers the question. 
Yeah, it's fantastic. I think the interesting thing here is I mean, obviously these types of integrations, whether it's, you know, uh, with Red Hat, Okta, um, you know, having kind of like a marketplace for these types of things to be integrated in, I think really does bring value. Um, before I bring my co-host back in, one more question, more around the competitive landscape here. I know you, we talked a little bit about the fact that there are some API management services out there today. Um, but one kind of get, you know catches me because we talked to Salesforce last week uh, in regards to MuleSoft, and they they kind of find they basically find a way to take your data and develop some APIs for you, and then of course scale them out for you as well. How is this kind of different than Kong? What is is Kong allowing you to uh, do something? where you can develop more APIs and more kind of heterogeneous set of services behind it here? Is, or is MuleSoft kind of completely different here? Right? Completely off base. So MuleSoft started as an ESB integration company back in the days. Mm-hmm. And then they created an API management to be able to capture uh, you know, the opportunity when it comes to API management. Right. The, big, the big problem that MuleSoft and also others that were born in during the same period of time, you know, around, you know, they were all born around, you know, in the mid 2000s. The problem that all of them have is that they were born for a different world, the monolithic world. They were not born for the Kubernetes microservices distributed decoupled world. That is why Kong today exists, because we were able to provide a technology that was better in this new world and that the others didn't really support that well. That, that was the window of opportunity that Kong captured such as it allows me to be speaking with you today. Um, the API, so if there is an enterprise ca- customer that wants to purchase a modern API infrastructure that can support them in their legacy infrastructure, but also whatever the teams are creating today in the future, uh, for example, containers and Kubernetes, they probably want to purchase a Kubernetes native, a container native solution that's fast, that's performance, that's lightweight, that can be extended very easily, uh, with integrations and plugins. And this is really what Kong does since 2015. So we provide a modern platform that is able to support them in this new world of microservices because we were born after this new world of microservices was already established. And so the technology itself was meant for, for this type of use case. Now, for example, take performance. Performance, it's something that's quite important with microservices. If um, you know, performance was slow back in the days when we had our monolithic applications and an API on top, you know, we could fix that by putting a CDN in front. But with microservices, we cannot do that. There is much more back and forth across all the services that we're creating because of the nature of a microservice architecture and the performance of every middleware that we're putting in between this communication has to be quite fast. Otherwise, the application is not going to be working properly. Back in the days when the monolithic applications was being were, were created, you know, if the monolith was down, the application was down. But with microservices, if the microservices are slow, the application is down. Performance uh, it's, it impacts the end user experience a lot more these days. Slow is the new down. So we can't be slow. We have to use fast technology that allows us to connect all of these services together. And this is really the bread and butter of Kong. You know, with sub-millisecond latency, uh, we can perform more than 100 plugins and policies on top of those requests without impacting the actual performance of the microservice. This is a big deal because it allows at the end of the day to create better products and better customer experience uh, in the applications that we build. 
I agree. I think anytime you have you call into an API, your application is dependent on you want that fluid response, you want that fluid experience, and not have to worry about where your back end is, where your front end is, where your you know where your data is at. Um, and I think this is great. I think it's pretty awesome. Uh, some of the things that Kong's doing. I do want to bring my co-host back in because they're chomping at the bit here. So we'll let's start with Kurt. Kurt. Thanks, Lou. I appreciate it. Now, one of the things that I'd like to talk about you you mentioned. Uh, managing the process of using the APIs. I know that for many customers, one of the things that they're very interested in is understanding the security implications of all the dependencies in code. And, and it sounds like you're right in the middle of the dependency tree. You know, are you doing anything from a security standpoint to help companies understand what the dependencies are and make sure that those pieces that they include in their code are secure? We do a couple of things. Uh, the first thing is providing security capabilities. We have more than 10 plus plugins for authentication authorization, uh, zero trust um, that the customer can use on top of their microservices. And then once they set it up in a secure way, we provide observability metrics and charts that allows to inspect what are the service dependencies uh, over the network that uh, these different microservices are consuming. The service map topology view, for example, is one of those charts. So it's twofold. First, we must enforce the security and provide higher level abstractions that allows the application teams to create permissions on top of these security capabilities. And that's uh, more of a security runtime concern. And then once we set that up, we must have analytics and tracing and monitoring and, and service map topology views to analyze that the security is indeed being observed and performed and that it's working well. And so we also provide this type of capabilities out of the box. I mean, security really is is uh, one of the biggest topics and one of the biggest reasons why Kong's technology is being deployed. I'll tell you more. Transitioning to microservices, it's actually an opportunity to improve security. When we run everything in a monolithic application, there is no security whatsoever. Anybody who can get access to the code base can potentially consume objects that can change the state of our resources in an unchecked way. But with microservices, because everything is being decoupled, we now have an opportunity to be able to assign an identity to every service and then being able to perform uh, permissions on top of these services in such a way that we can create a more a uh, watertight environment that is more secure, more than monolithic applications. And this is internal security. Then there is security at the edge with OpenID Connect and OAuth and so on, which also Kong provides out of the box. All right. And just just to make sure, it sounds like you you are, in fact, doing a lot to ensure that the APIs being used are secure do you think that by using your platform, a company can can tick API security off their, their list of things to worry about? Or are there still ways that they need to incorporate Kong into a, a larger security scenario? Kong is absolutely being used today to provide a secure and scalable API infrastructure to the organization. As a matter of fact, Thinking about security early on, it's quite critical because our teams are going to be creating more APIs. And the more APIs they create 
And the bigger the problem becomes if we do not really have a strategy when it comes to API security. And so Kong is being used to provide that underlying secure foundation that also allows the organization to scale and create new APIs in a secure way down the road. Uh, but, but then, of course, we also provide 10 or 15 plus integrations uh, with Kong and third parties in such a way that if there is a customer who really wants to use another solution to measure and monitor all the API traffic that's being generated, well, Kong integrates with that. And this really goes back to the previous question when it comes to uh, Kong Force, which is our part- partner and channel uh, program that really wants to create as many extensions as possible um, inside of Kong in both the gateway and the service mesh to be able to integrate Kong with any other third-party solution. So we, 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 can do, we can do both and we can also integrate with third parties. Marco, Curtis. Go ahead, Brian. <laughs> no, I just wanted to go and ask a little bit of what if. Um, one of my problems that I had when I was doing design work in the federal government was a lot of things had to go and touch different services. In my case, actually completely different military bases. And they had to happen in a very particular order because of the command structure. I was just wondering... What, do you think blockchain might be a future for the API world so that when you're running your system across multiple clouds, you can make sure they're coming in the correct order and um, you have trust between those connections? I, I believe that a better use case for this type of behavior would be to integrate some sort of e- events within uh, the architecture. So when, when we think of when we think of microservices, most likely we're thinking of service to service communication. But that's not the only way to build microservices. We can also build microservices with events. So event-based microservices that are asynchronous, they're going to be collected in a log collector like Kafka, for example, and then they're going to be uh, propagated in a specific order. Uh, Kong does indeed integrate with event collectors like Kafka, for example, to be able to perform these type of behaviors. But this is more, I would probably think of these use cases more in the context of eventing as opposed to uh, blockchain. Cool. So if I'm trying to get into this, you know, I'm I'm a small to medium-sized corporation. I want to try and start using this type of thing. What kinds of homework should I be doing before I give you guys a call? Well, the technology is open source. And as a matter of fact, I believe that open source is the future for modern infrastructure. I mean, when we look at the microservices revolution, we look at Docker, Kubernetes, uh, Kong or Kafka or Prometheus, Grafana, Elastic, Kibana, like, you know, all of these technologies are open source. Open source is driving this bottom-up transformation in the industry, which makes sense. When we think about it, open source allows us to do a couple of things. Number one, it allows us to have control of a very critical layer of technology in our stack. When everything is API-powered, for example, we don't want to use a black box that's closed source in the middle of that. We want to be using something open source like Kong so that we have control on top of whatever we're running. And if there is a problem, we can fix it, we can extend it and so on. Um, And then the second reason is that open source really creates better software. With open source, there is a much uh, bigger feedback loop from the adopters uh, to the maintainers, uh, in this case, Kong. 
And so we can implement and integrate those, that feedback and those improvements much quicker than a closed source solution. And at the end of the day, we end up with a better product and a better technology than many other closed source versions. Um, and and I, I truly believe that, that, that open source is key here. And by the way, if I am a user of Kong and I'm working for, let's say, a bank or a military or a federal organization, and then I change my job down the road, because the technology is open source, I can also carry that skill set elsewhere. So I don't have to retrain myself every time on a different technology. And this is the beauty of open source. And this is one of the reasons why Kong, since the beginning, was open source. Fantastic. Wow. Time just flew by. Some really interesting stuff here. All good things must come to an end. Marco, we're definitely going to have to have you back because there's lots more to talk about here. Some really interesting stuff, especially use cases. You started getting into that. And I want to hear more about that. But unfortunately, we're running a little low on time. I did want to give you a chance to tell the folks at home, where can people learn more about Kong? How can the organizations get started? Where, where can they go? KongHQ.com slash install. Bam. Easy as that. Fantastic. Thanks again, Marco, for, for being here. We really appreciate it. Take care. Yeah, thank you so much. This was fun. Well, folks, you've done it again. You sat through another hour of the Best Thing Enterprise podcast in the universe. So definitely tune your podge catcher to Twyatt. I want to thank everyone who makes this show possible. Definitely a team effort. And I want to thank my co-host. Starting with our very own Mr. Brian Chi. What's going on for you in the coming weeks, Brian? Where can people find you? Uh, I'm tinkering. I want to, I'm building a solar pool water heater. And then, of Ooh. course, I'm also tinkering with my dancing lights. So I'm getting Christmassy here. Um, the solar pool heaters, because I'm too cheap to go and use, you know, anything other than solar energy to warm up my pool. And the pool's a little cold, and I want I want to be able to swim. Anyway, um, I, I've been sharing. Um, the video that I alluded to at the beginning of the show is actually on YouTube and I have shared it on both Twitter and Facebook. So if you're following me, you can see that even though it has a um, commercial video on it that I can't share on this show, but it was a lot of fun for those folks in the central Florida area. I strongly recommend give kids. The world village is running a thing called night of a million lights and you can still get tickets. And it was a spectacular evening. Lots and lots of fun. Loved it. Want to do it again. In fact, I think I'm going to uh, volunteer next year, which ought to be fun. Anyway, <clears throat> my Twitter handle is ADVNETLAB, Advanced Net Lab, and I'd love to hear from you. You're also more than welcome to drop me an email. I am Chebert, spelled C-H-E-E-B-E-R-T at twit.tv, or you can drop an email to twyatt at twit.tv and that'll hit all the hosts we love to hear your show ideas um i love to hear what you thought good or bad in fact i just got a bunch of emails from some librarians who uh from the last show they were talking about how the publishers are um pricing themselves out of the library market and they uh sent some nice greetings for the holiday season. And you know what? We got some great feedback from all of you. Want to hear from you. And you know what? Happy holidays to you and yours. 
Thank you, Cheever. Kids the World Village looks amazing. And I do want to call out the, the emails that we were getting. I thought that was really great, just getting some feedback on our show, especially how it was impacting them. So that was really cool to see. Thanks again, Cheever. Well, I also have to thank our very own Mr. Curtis Franklin. Curtis, what's going on for you in the coming week? And where can people find you and all your great work? Well, the big thing I've got coming up is, as I mentioned, a webinar uh, on the 14th. Uh, of December. I'm going to be talking about how to best assess whether your training is working. Uh, this is going to be interesting. It's going to be a conversation between me and um, Omer Taran, another expert in cyber readiness training. Uh, I'm going to have the link to this. It's a free webinar. And so I'll have the link in my Twitter handle. That's down at KG4GWA also on LinkedIn and similar places. So I would love it if you uh, would come and listen to the conversation. Uh, let us know what's, what you think about it all. Uh, and I want to take just one second to mention uh, something sad that happened a couple of weeks ago. Uh, as most people know, I was a senior editor at Dark Reading. And years ago, I was one of the first columnists at Dark Reading. Well, the co-founder and chief editor of Dark Reading, Tim Wilson, passed away the week of Thanksgiving uh, after a short battle with cancer. He's taken far too young. Tim was a great journalist and an outstanding leader in the cybersecurity industry. Uh, he will be missed terribly by his co-workers, by his friends and family. Uh, he's an example of how this is, despite all the talk about technology, an industry made up of human beings. Tim was a great human being. We miss him a lot. Thank you, Curtis. Well, folks, we also have to thank you as well. You're the person who drops in each and every week to watch and to listen to our show to get your enterprise goodness. We want to make it easy for you to watch and listen to your enterprise and IT news. So go to our show page right now, twit.tv slash twiet. There you will find all of our amazing back episodes, the show notes, the co-host information, the guest information, of course, the links of the stories we do during the show. But more importantly, next to those videos, you'll get those helpful subscribe and download links. Support the show by getting your audio version, your video version of your choice, and listen on any one of your devices or any, any, any one of your podcast applications because we are on all of them, and we definitely want you to subscribe and support the show. Plus, you may have heard, we talk about it all the time here, the amazing Club Twit. That's right. It's the members-only only ad-free podcast service with a bonus Twit Plus feed that you can't get anywhere else. And it's only $7 a month, only seven bucks. And it's one of my, one of my favorite things about it is that Club Twit is has this members-only Discord channel. I'm on it right now. There's a lot of great characters on there, amazing set of channels in there, some great discussions, some behind-the-scenes discussions, really fun stuff. So definitely jump in there and join the conversation. Join Club Twit and be part of the movement. Go to twit.tv slash Club Twit. Now, also remember... They're offering corporate group, group plans as well. Group plans, that's right. It's a great way to give your team access to ad-free tech podcasts, all of our act, all of tech-free podcasts. And, and that means that the plans will actually start with five members at a discounted rate of just $6 each per month. And you can add as many seats as you like. And this is a great way for your IT department, developers, tech teams to stay up to date with access to all of our podcast. So definitely do that. And like regular memberships, they can also join the Twit Discord server and that get that Twit Plus bonus feed as well. So go join right now, twit.tv slash 
Club Twit. Now, after you subscribe, you can impress your friends, your family members with the holiday season and your coworkers with the gift of Twi. And now I know I have. I've actually shared it with a lot of people out there. And we talk about some really fun tech topics on the show, and I can guarantee they will find it interesting and fun as well. So definitely share it with them and subscribe. Now, if you've already subscribed and you're available on these days, Friday, 1.30 p.m. Pacific time, we do this show live. You can check it out live.twit.tv. Come see how the pizza's made, the behind the scenes, all the fun stuff, all the banter. Definitely check out the live stream. And of course, if you can watch the live stream, you might as well jump into our famous IRC channel as well. That's right. We still have IRC and there's some amazing characters and discussions going on there right now. IRC dot twit dot tv come join the the fun back there and um, be part of the live show now definitely hit hit me up whether it's direct message or show ideas discussions whatever you want twitter.com slash lou i'm i'm always on there i'm always live i'm on vacation now i'm going to be a little bit more uh, uh showing up there a little bit more so definitely check that out and of course get in contact with me there Plus, of course, I want to have great conversations with you guys because I think a lot of people have some great show ideas and we always have a good back and forth. So definitely check that out and join me there. If you want to know what's going on during my normal work week at Microsoft, check out developers.microsoft.com slash office. There they will show you some of the amazing, great ways to customize your office experience to make it more productive for you. In fact, I just built a new Office add-in inside of Outlook. That's right, Outlook, whether it's OWA on Office Web Access or Outlook Web Access, or even on your Outlook desktop for Mac and, and Windows, an add-in that actually lets me track tasks and uh, and prioritize things. So I'm going to maybe share that with some of you as well. It's a really amazing add-in. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to put it in the store yet. We'll have to see. Definitely check all of that out. Also, I want to thank everyone who makes this show possible, especially to Leo and Lisa. They continue to support us each and every year and support This Week in Enterprise Tech, and we couldn't do the show without them. So thank you for all the support. Happy holidays to them. And I also want to thank all the engineers and staff at Twit. We definitely couldn't do the show without them and all their support. And I also want to thank Mr. Brian Chi one more time. He's not only our co-host, but he's also our towerless producer. That's right. He does all the show bookings, and he he works with all the, all the PR firms and plannings for the show. We definitely couldn't do the show without him. So thank you, Cheever, for all your support and all your help throughout the times. And before I sign out, I do want to thank our editor for today, Mr. Victor B. He's a very talented guy that makes us look good after the after the after we do the feed here and mess everything up and he makes us look good after the fact so thank you victor b i know uh he he has a big big job when it comes to my side of the uh service here so thanks victor for all your support and of course i want to thank our td for today mr ant pruitt he is not talented not only in being a technical director but also he has some amazing fabulous shows out there starting with hands-on for doc photography it's a great show about photography each every week they have some great topics that they talk about i watch it every week i learn something new I mean, uh, Ant, what's what's going on this week in uh, hands-on photography? Well, sir, to, uh, this week I was able to talk to Mr. Peter Adams. This man is a dadgum master at headshots and portrait photography. I figure this is the time of year where people are going to try to look at, you know, rebranding themselves as they get ready for the new year. And why not ask a master portrait photographer and master headshot photographer about some great tips to make yourself and your model look really, really good. 
Fantastic. I have to check that, sh- that uh, show out. I know uh, for me, I just had some photos done by a photographer for the holiday season. Not impressed. Not impressed. I'm, I wish I did have a master uh, doing them. I might have to share and uh, maybe get some get some edit, editing I, tips. We'll have I, I got to <laughs> tell you, brother, I struggle with that, too. And um, so, yeah, we have our family Christmas card and stuff like that that we like to do each year. And <laughs> yeah, I'm going to shoot it myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish I could have, but yeah. If I shoot it myself, you know, so I get a tripod and, and light it up and all of that stuff because right, yeah, right. nobody else is really meeting my standards, if you will. They, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, one thing that I showed in my photos, there was we had a group of people, about 18 people, and like the back row of people were out of focus. Uh, I was like, this is oh. supposed to be a family photo. You can't have them out of focus. Oh, no. Oh, man. They can't fix and post either. That's impossible. Nope, so. It's done. <laughs> it's done. Anyways, thank you, Ant. I will definitely check that show out. And until next time, I'm Louis Moresco, just reminding you if you want to know what's going on in the enterprise, just keep quiet. Android is constantly evolving, and if you're part of the Android faithful, then you'll be just as excited about it as I am. I'm Jason Howell, host of All About Android, along with my co-hosts Florence Ion and Ron Richards, where every week we cover the news, we cover the hardware, and we cover the apps that are driving the Android ecosystem. Plus, we invite people who are writing about Android, talking about Android, and making Android onto the show. Every Tuesday at twit.tv, look for All About Android. Thank you.